Hello, it's Denise from Women Beyond a Certain Age. I'm so thrilled to have my friend Liz Pollock on today, and let me tell you why. Liz wrote a book called Lost Restaurants of Santa Cruz County. Now, Liz and I know each other from Facebook. Uh, I think we're of similar vintages. I think that we have known each other through networking organizations also. But mostly, I need to share with you, I think this is just so brilliant. Liz is a bookseller and she has an online bookstore called The Cook's Bookcase. It's unique and out of print books on cookery and wine. And I mean, come on, isn't everyone's dream in the world to, I know my dream was to own a bookstore when I was a hippie and lived in Mendocino. And my life took a turn when I married my first husband and it took me a while to get back on my path. So Liz, I'm so excited and proud to have you on the show today. Thank you for coming, hello. Good morning, Denise. It's a thrill to be with you this morning. Liz sent us books. I'm keeping one for myself, which I very seldom do, Liz, and I mean that. I, I purged two years ago and donated like 2,000 cookbooks because after 30 years, I had too many. Do you know what I mean? I mean, just too many. I wanted someone else to enjoy them. But we will have a giveaway for Liz's book because it's utterly charming. Now, Miss Liz, how did you decide to write this book? That's a great question. And I wanted to say that two years ago, I had no idea that we were actually going to lose restaurants, that we, that we were going to have such an upset because of this pandemic. But I collect menus. That's my personal thing. And I collect cocktail lists and cocktail menus and wine lists and ephemera of all kinds. So I had a whole display of what I have on Santa Cruz County. And that goes up to Davenport, down to Watsonville, to, up to Boulder Creek, and down to the Santa Cruz Municipal Wharf. And I wondered, where is that restaurant now? What is there? Uh, what did it used to be? And so I did some research, and I, I was just fascinated to learn that there were a number of these restaurants that were started by women in... Yes the 30s and 40s and my range in the book is from 1940 to 1990 so it's 50 years of initiative of determination of a lot of hard work as you know it's an it's a 20 hour a day job and my approach because i'm a certified mixologist is from a bartender's viewpoint and i really had a lot of fun of doing it, it i interviewed almost 80 people I had a lot of fun writing the book. Well, I can tell just reading the opening, there's also the cutest picture of you. <laughs> you were the first woman bartender at a famous restaurant in Santa Cruz in 1985. See, and this is the thing with the chances and the choices and we have sped up in the last 20 years, you know, last 20, 25 years. I mean, young women now become sommeliers and all sorts of things happen. They don't understand that wasn't even happening. 30 years ago. And it wasn't happening because we sometimes we weren't allowed to. Sometimes it just wasn't good for business or so people thought. And for you to mention one thing, which is why I always tease about how um, chefs, famous chefs are all men. Do you know what I mean? Well, who do you think my favorite 
favorite award show. Michelle Richard was still alive and he won this huge award and I was a guest and he stood up and said, I have to thank my mother who taught me how to cook. So your comment about these restaurants were owned by women, of course they were because wars came on and that's what they knew what to do. They could cook. Right, and I was the first um, student in my American bartender school in San Jose that was a female. Oh my God, I love that. And I knew that, of course, I could perfect the recipe or present a cocktail in front of someone, but I also knew that my manager could depend on me, could always depend on my, my, my work ethic. And I made more money as a bartender than I would have as a secretary. In the mid 80s, that was my, <laughs> that, that was reality for me. I getcha. Right. And what did you go to college for? What's your degree in, Liz? Oh, I went to UC Santa Cruz. My degree is in comparative literature. And so, you know, I, I mean, it dovetails. It's a perfect lead in or segue to my appreciating books and the history of books and, and menus. Perfect. See, it comes full circle, Liz. If we, if we get lucky in our lives, uh, they come full circle. I say this all the time. That's Do you know right. what I mean? And That's yours right. certainly has. Now, I, Liz and I got to talk a little before we were broad, the broadcast today. And she mentioned Davenport. Now, if you don't know the Santa Cruz area, not only would you enjoy this book, to learn about it, because, but see, people in California know Santa Cruz, because Santa Cruz has always just been, the boardwalk was famous, Liz. I mean, I grew up in Marin County, but as teenagers, my girlfriends and I, the minute we could borrow one of our parents' car and steal $20 for gas, and a pack of Debbie Krause mother's cigarettes, I mean, we had a long shopping list. <laughs> before we got there but we went to Santa the Santa Cruz boardwalk and we went there of course to study English literature and to pick up boys okay that's what we went there <laughs> and but I mean it's so famous the boardwalk so I knew Santa Cruz from that but also my grandfather who was an immigrant to San Francisco and you know talk about lost restaurants Liz and that we're going to get into that but my grandfather came here and became a butcher. But the only place he could get an apprenticeship was in Davenport. Somebody built that gigantic hotel. Is it the Ritz-Carlton down there? Is it the Four Seasons somebody built? But other than that, you used to just drive and there would be a sign that said Davenport, like population 20, and there was a graveyard on the side of the hill. <laughs> But it's so charming. That whole area is so charming. You must have had so much fun researching this book. Oh, I sure did. You know, part of my approach was to go through maybe a couple of thousand fictitious business licenses. And, and when did they start out? What were the names? When did they sell? When did they appropriate park, more parking spaces? When did they get their liquor license? All yeah. of these things. When did they auction off furniture when they sold it? You know, or when did someone pass away? And, and, and so if a member of the family continued on, that was wonderful. I loved it. I mean, you can always rely, hopefully, on your family members to show up. And I really set out to interview the family members of the chefs, the managers, and the owners. Of course, the purveyors, one of my approaches is the purveyors for these restaurants. They're part of the restaurant community. 
they delivered every morning uh, the meat, produce, the linen, the bread and the rolls, uh, the wine. It was all so fascinating for me. I had a wonderful time talking with these people. We know, because we've been in it, hospitality, restaurants, call it whatever you want, food and, you know, food and wine, it's a billion dollar industry. Sure. And most people, like you saying, you made more money as a bartender, and I, I made more money as a, see, I ran a big commissary. I worked in several restaurants, made very little money in restaurants. And of course, I was lucky to get a job in a restaurant in the 80s because they didn't want girls in the kitchen. <laughs> but catering chefs, when all of a sudden you, I became a catering chef, I started to make some serious dough. But again, and people had made such comments about it. All catering is an, is an extension of the home. Of course, women would be good at catering. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But I love your comments about that. I think that uh, people don't understand if they haven't worked in the industry, the people you just mentioned, and you mention it in your book, and I absolutely love one of them, the person that cleaned the grease trap. Okay, so if you've never been in the restaurant industry, you don't know that that deep fat fryer that you need for hors d'oeuvres and all these things on your menu, without that deep fat fryer, you're in trouble. And it's also a pain in the ass to clean. You only have to clean it once before you find someone to do it for you, I think. <laughs> the business owner that I um, interviewed, it's a regular thing. It, you know, it's just scheduled three right. or four times a year. And of course, it's all, um, in, that's per the inspector, the city permits, the county permits. It's it's, re it's a regulation now, but yeah. it's for your dishwasher and the, it's, um, it's a big job. Big job. Restaurants to me, Liz, are all, it's piecemeal work that becomes manufacturing. All the pieces, it's like if you've ever seen the garment district downtown, they may get 2,000 pieces of cloth that day and their job in a shop is to just put in the zippers. They sure. don't put it all together. Right. And I look at the restaurant industry and it's seven o'clock in the morning. There can be a dishwasher finishing up from the night before and somebody's cleaning the bars, you know, and getting the dirty bar towels because they smell. And if you've worked in a restaurant, you see that it is a symphony. 10 o'clock, the delivery starts. So you have to have that first, first line if you serve lunch. I mean, it's all just, it's just a ballet and a symphony of everybody has to do their job for it to come together. And that's why I love your book, because it talks about all these wonderful restaurants. It's not an easy business. And most people, they get into it. And most of them, like you were saying, if family will then take all those years, it takes such hard work to have a success. That's what I'm trying to say. And, and when someone like the Rotary, the Elks, the Lions, the Masons, the Realtor Association, when they give a party, they depend on that restaurant to have it immaculate, have the color, uh, or if it's a bachelor party or bachelorette yes. party, that they want that color of tablecloth, you know, and all of these things come together because it's expensive. And so, you know, I'm sure you have your memories of, you know, strange things that happen at wedding receptions, but the, the purveyors know through their friendships with these restaurateurs, you know, what to expect. They, they can always count on the best uh, wait staff. And 
I've heard people who they got married at a place yes. and then their daughter gets married at the same place. Yes. You, you know, you know, it's, it's that generations of, of knowing each other and counting on each other for high standards. Yeah. What you've mentioned and what you had mentioned before, see the history of restaurants to me. And if you look at it, when all of a sudden our economics change in restaurant, you know, we are guided by economics and wars and, but restaurants, are for celebrations. Uh Now, in my day and age, restaurants were for celebrations. Well, we knew we were moving up in the world that we could go out for Sunday morning brunch. Do you know what I mean? I mean, there was some money coming in. I know now because people don't cook at home and our whole society has changed, you know, and there's many more chain restaurants where people can go and get a wonderful meal for 10 or 12 bucks. But something you alluded to, but celebrations and the history that restaurants give us that you can remember your whole life is amazing. And you touched on it, Liz, we're in this pandemic, we're going to lose a lot of independent restaurants, whether they can weather the storm or come back. So after you did all this work, Liz, what restaurants, is there one or two in the book that you never got to eat at that you wish you had? Yes. The Trout Farm in Ben Lomond, Felton okay. area. Um, <clears throat> what you could do is, and it was around for a really long time, they you could, they issued you a, a rod and reel, you brought your whole family, you fished for trout, they took the trout, and you ate it for dinner that night. See how fabulous. And then you stayed in these little, like little bungalows, isn't that wonderful? That's part restaurant, part Disneyland. <laughs> oh, totally. And it's it's in the Redwoods. It's a, it's a gorgeous experience. And a lot of people for decades enjoyed that. It's, it was called the Trout Farm? Mm-hmm. The Trout Farm Inn. I'm not sure. Oh, the Trout Farm. I'm going to look for it in your book. I'm not sure that couldn't... Uh, of course, liability would be different, but I'm not sure that that wouldn't be a wonderful premise for a restaurant today. I, I agree. And so the owner, he put the small fish, I forget what you call it right now, fed the trout and uh, seeded the trout. On the f- yeah, yeah, yeah. So, he, yeah, sure. Put the trout in the lake. There you go. But he had a lot of success for a lot of years. Families uh, kept going there. It was, it was wonderful. There was another place that I did go a couple times uh, called uh, the Brookdale Lodge. And that's um, in Brookdale, which is kind of near Boulder Creek. It was a Hollywood celebrity go-to getaway vacation kind of thing. And there was a stream that went right down the middle of the dining room. And kind of like Clinton's in downtown L.A. Yes. But really redwoods. And there was a bridge that you could get married on. So it's a wonderful experience. It was an experience. It wasn't just sitting at the yes. table getting food. That's it right. The whole sh- the whole ball of wax. Yeah, there you go. Mm-hmm. When I was reading, I loved it, Liz. And one of the reasons is, as a child, and in San Francisco where I grew up, um, and in Marin, the restaurants that have disappeared. Of course, the other thing is, and this is totally 
um, self-serving, but a lot of restaurants were Italians because Italians came here and that's what they knew. And then the immigration patterns, Vietnamese, do you remember when Vietnamese restaurants all of a sudden showed up because the war, war torn Vietnam, and they came, Thai restaurants, the same thing. And I remember in the 80s when there was a Thai restaurant on every corner, all of a sudden I thought, what's happening here? <laughs> you know, and then I realized because of course, immigrants know how to cook. So I grew up with Italians in San Francisco and in Davenport. And I know that as a child, I saw that this was a way for people to understand each other, that food was a way, and food and wine was a way for people to have fun and understand each other and celebrate and soothe. Do you know what I mean? And soothe each other. The good news is probably more people are cooking at home, and that's a good thing. I miss restaurants that I used to go to, Liz, and they've disappeared. And, and there's some things that we can learn in this pandemic. For instance, uh, my approach to the years of the 1950s and the car hops and drive-ins, that whole uh, notion of, uh, okay, so say the dining room was full. Well, you have an extra dining room in your parking lot. And um, I interviewed people who were car hops, whose parents owned places like this, what was a minimum uh, expenditure, but fantastic moneymaker were these uh, uh, parking lots. And so I see that the, the curbside service of today is an extension of that, is a, is a replay or reintroduction of that notion. And uh, well, you remember, you know, the whole car culture and the music and the jukebox and everything that, we could relax our, our city permits and allow these restaurants to continue that curbside service and make it fun. I love it. I, yeah. I love that. Also, when all of a sudden drive-ins during this pandemic have started to make a comeback, my husband is taking me to a concert in Ventura, Liz, where we stay in our car. And actually, Cindy's sister, who she and her husband are residents here in Ventura, and they said it's really fun. Instead of clapping, everyone just hang, you know, honks their horn. Oh, that's so cute. I know, isn't it? But also, you know, what kids may not know, some people, there was a sexiness to that car hop, meaning not the car hop. She delivered your food, but if you were a teenager or even that was so sexy to be with your boyfriend and have your hamburger or your milkshake in his car. Right. Yeah. And I remember some of the best times in my life, which was not, and not in a sexy way, but my father would go out of town because he worked all the time, but he would go on a vacation. He was a duck hunter. And my mother would take my sisters and I to a drive-in where we had, they had, you know, the car hop. And when that frosty glass of root beer or whatever came from that girl and we could all just be private in my mother's car. I mean, to me, that was like, the greatest thing that ever happened. My father wasn't there. We weren't around the dining room table. We kind of could all relax. We could talk. And we had frosty glasses of A&W root beer. I remember thinking, you know, you're singing to the latest songs that are playing on the radio or at the drive-in, the, uh, uh, the car hop. Um, it was a romantic place. They were open till two or three in the morning. It was a place to meet guys for them to show off their brand new cars and their interiors. And, and my approach 
in uh, to this was was the invention of the pressed aluminum car hop tray. Who invented it? How was it? How was it perfected with the little rubber things that you put down that, so it wouldn't scratch the window, for instance? And you, you know, it's just that whole manufacturing of these small appliances. You know, have so many milkshake blenders on the counter. You, you, it, I love all that stuff. And to make it so that it's an exciting place, they, they rented a jukebox. They had a guy come once a month and replace the 45s. It, it's so fun. It's an experience. Now, see, I never knew that. Of course they would have had to do that. I never knew that. I know I'm going to learn a lot of different things from your book. I'm so grateful to you. Now, your cookbook store online, are you seeing during this pandemic, have you had an increase with people looking for books? And how do you get people to know about your online cookbook store? That, that's a good question. I, I went online in 2007. I live in a neighborhood where I cannot hang a shingle, but I do have people come to my place I have a large garage and I had a guy come in and build me bookshelves and that's where you're sitting right now because it's beautiful thank you very much you know I I do exhibit at book fairs I do issue catalogs I feel that I I try to listen to what customers are looking for I have my own idea of French cooking or Creole or New Orleans chefs and and I love all that stuff and cocktail lists, of course. But what are people really writing about? Why, why are they interested in books on, say, rice or baking soda? It's so fascinating to me. I know. What, what turns them on then leads me on um, a chase. Because I have antenna growing out of my head. And I want to be able to um, find interesting things for my customers. I love that. That's wonderful. And if someone was looking for a rare book, though, they could call you and you would try to find it for them? Oh, absolutely. Sure. Uh huh. And, and I also, I'm a sustainer member of the Junior League of San Jose. And so I'm interested in Junior League cookbooks, but I'm interested in the whole concept of the community cookbook. And I wanted to say that in fundraising drives to maybe purchase a new roof for the church or buy new swing sets for the school or something like that. It's the cookbook that really is the rocket fuel for fundraising. Yes. And for community members to work together and for these women cookbooks for decades now, you know, the ring binder and the comb spine and all that. Yes. Oftentimes these women who contribute their recipes, they're busy maybe they're not ever going to see their name in print except for that community cookbook. How thrilling. How exciting. How thrilling. I have several community cookbooks from the South, the famous ones. Now, of course, their names escape me, but I kept those. And I have them, Liz, because my husband went to uh, law school at Tulane in New Orleans. Wonderful. So some of these books were his. Do you see what I'm saying? So they taught him how to make a kulabrak, or they taught him how to make a gumbo. 
but I love community cookbooks and I agree with you. And I love the ones that said things like Mrs. Stan Smith serves, oh, this, yeah. you know, crab spread at every party. And you know why I love it? Because cookbooks, just like restaurants are a history of our culture. Do you know what I mean? And they just, they just are. There is no getting around it. And we need them. Sure. That's all it is. We need them. Right. My approach also to the community cookbook is that over the decades, they'll introduce, say, uh, blenders or, or an easier way of doing it or, or an individual fryer or an ele or electric kitchen. Absolutely. I grew up with electric kitchen. I never had an electric stove or an oven, but some of these um, houses in the in the forties and fifties, that's what they came up with, and they had to learn how to do all of that. I'm always learning. And you know what, Liz? When you say that, see, that's how food styling really became big because. Amana and Frigidaire and all of these appliance companies hired home economists to put recipes together to sell these appliances. Sure. And in turn, when they had to take pictures of the food, a whole new home economist became food stylist because they learned that there were tricks to the trade to make the food look better under the camera. There you go. We're all so interconnected. So thank you so much for your time and energy today. And we're going to talk to you again. Now, if anyone wants to reach out to Liz, all her information is going to be in the show notes that Miss Cindy so precisely puts up every time on the Woman Beyond a Certain Age page. And we love it when people write us and say, ooh, that was wonderful. I want to know more. It's uh, Woman Beyond a Certain Age is our website. We have a Facebook page, Women Beyond a Certain Age. You can contact us at, I think it's womenbeyond at icloud.com. I can see Cindy, she just gave me the thumb up. So I actually said, the <laughs> now Liz is giving me the thumb up. One of the things that I think is very clear about women beyond a certain age, Liz, we are hungry for knowledge. We are in such wonderful times in our life. You started a bookstore in your own garage. This is extraordinary. And then moved online. But the other thing is, the reality is, is sometimes if it's not written down in front of me and I can't read it off a cheat card, it flies out of my head faster than I can. <laughs> then I, I say to my husband, I'll, I'll say to him, you know the word for that. And he'll say, Denise, I really don't. But never mind. <laughs> so thank you, Liz. Thank you for everything. Thank you, Denise, and thank you, Cindy. And I look forward to talking with you again. Perfect. Bye-bye. Lovely. That was fantastic. <laughs>